1 Peter 5, 6 through 11, and it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, have you guys ever found yourself in the the type of situation where you're just like really going through something difficult, through something hard, and you're like wondering like, what am I going to do with this? Like, how am I going to get out of this? When am I going to see the end of this? How am I going to survive this? What's going to happen next? And you find yourself just sort of like shaking your fists at the heavens, asking, man, when is this suffering going to stop? When will this anxiety that I'm feeling, when is that going to fade away? Those are the kinds of questions that Peter's audience are asking when he writes this letter to them in 1 Peter. And this is why he refers to them in 1 Peter 1 as elect exiles. He calls them elect exiles at the beginning of the letter. He calls them elect because they belong to God. And that word elect is a rich, is a rich word in the history of God's people. It was a word of comfort and encouragement to them. It says that they were chosen, that they belonged to God. But on the other hand, they're exiles because they aren't at their true home yet. They're just temporary residents in the here and now. The reality of God's kingdom are both what theologians call the now, they're in between the now and the not yet. In other words, right now we can experience realities of the kingdom, but we just, we just know because of our suffering, because of our hardships, that there are aspects of the kingdom that are not yet. We can wake up to see the new mercies of each morning, singing God's praises, but go to bed feeling depressed and dejected in our spirit. Have any of you guys ever felt like that? I'm no stranger to that myself. I struggle with anxiety. I was diagnosed a little over a year ago with clinical depression, not realizing that this is something that I've struggled with for the last few years to the points where it's just debilitating and paralyzing for me. Consuming my thoughts, I've started seeing a therapist taking medication and just taking this before the Lord. And so I share that with you because I want you to understand that like I'm no stranger to this, I'm as much a beggar before the throne of grace as, as anyone else here. And that's what Peter's writing into. That's the situation, the, the, the state of heart that Peter's writing to. We come now to the end of his letter. 
to his final word of encouragement to these elect exiles, people who love and know God, but they're experiencing a life where things seem to be going wrong. They're, they're, they seem to be wanting more out of this world than what this world can actually offer. And that has been Peter's theme throughout the whole letter. And so he ends now with a final word on living in that very real tension between the now and the not yet. So I want to ask you, like, what, what is the true experience of your heart when you feel those tensions? If you feel them the way that I do, what is the experience in your heart? Are you tempted to question, to, to doubt the goodness of God? The good news we're going to see this morning, the big idea from this text is that there is true rest from our restlessness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as simply put as that, there's true rest from our restlessness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see now from Peter in these uh, next five to six verses, uh, six verses rather, um, how to take hold of that rest. Number one, we see, he says, we got to recognize our place. Recognize your place. Read verse six with me. First Peter five, verse six, he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Something we were talking about in my home group this week as we were kind of parsing uh, apart this text, we were looking at this passage of scripture and talking about like what is true humility? And when we look at how humility is talked about in the Bible, what we see is that true Christian humility is really about knowing the, the difference between my place and God's place. That's what Christian humility is. Knowing the difference between my place and God's place. I want you to notice, he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. This mighty hand phrase was used a lot in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Exodus. If you're going through our Bible reading plan for the year, we, we went through that uh, about a couple months ago. Um, in the book of Exodus, it referred to God's mighty hand, how it was over his people. Over the nation of Israel, he brought two million of them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them out from captivity. And, and so Peter is sort of evoking, he's borrowing that phrase, the mighty hand of God, because his audience would, would know that phrase. They would be able to, uh, to, to associate it with the God of the Exodus. And Peter's saying, get under that hand. Get under the hand of the God who can deliver. Get under the hand of the God who redeems. You see, it's, it's one thing to know that God is good. That he's good and mighty and able. <coughs> but it's another thing to actually live like it. To actually live like it. It's kind of like how it's one thing to say that Handles is like the best ice cream on this side of the Pacific. <laughs> but it's something else entirely to actually know what that experience is like. 
to taste it, to have a taste for it. <clears throat> See, that's what it means to recognize your place and his place. It's where you trust him, not just knowing that he's a trustworthy God, but you actually trust him with all that you have and with all that you are. It means you trust the ability of the Almighty more than your own. It's saying, God, I'm unable, but you are able. It means you trust his wisdom more than your own. God, your ways are truly wise, not my own. It means you humbly believe that what he calls you to in the scriptures is true, good, right, and eternally satisfying. You understand that his hand is mighty, but that yours is feeble. I mean, you can confess <laughs> with the words of the prophet Isaiah when he shared this word from the Lord in Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, or neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so you start to find joy and rest in the context of his wisdom. Is that true of you this afternoon? Do you find joy and rest within the context of God's wisdom? Or are there times where you walk out of step from his wisdom because you think there's a better way? Peter says, no, recognize your place. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Number two, he says, rest in God's care. Rest in God's care. So we don't just recognize your place, but you rest in God's care. Verse seven, he says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You see, part of what it means to live in Christ is you, you understand that you don't have to be paralyzed by daily anxieties anymore. You don't have to be paralyzed by them. And to be clear, he's not talking about like clinical anxiety, but like our daily anxieties. Look, we're complex creatures, right? Mind, body, spirit. And part of what that means is we need to take care of our minds, our bodies, and our spiritual life and just, and just our, our everyday stuff of life. But to not be controlled by anxiety means you don't, doesn't mean that you don't get anxious. It means that, it doesn't mean that you don't worry. What it means is that those things don't lay you flat. They don't make you throw in the towel. They don't make you give up. It doesn't have to paralyze you with fearfulness and restlessness. And keep in mind, like some anxieties are sinful. Some of our anxieties are sinful where we're controlled by questions like, hey, what if people don't like me, right? We're constantly trying to please others rather than the Lord. Or, or we're saying, look, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be at rest until I have a house that's big enough or a car that's new enough. But some anxieties are, are righteous. Like what if my neighbor I've been praying for or that family member I love or my child doesn't come to know Christ or why does it seem like my prayers aren't being answered? And all of these things 
We're being told, cast those unto God because he cares for you. And that word, that word cast is a fishing term, one that Peter was undoubtedly very familiar with because he was a fisherman uh, before he left his business uh, to go follow a, a Jesus and, and serve alongside him. And so Peter's using this imagery of casting uh, your anxieties, and, and it's not like casting rods and reels like we think of with fishing, but casting nets. Think like the deep sea, right? They had to be thrown and weighted down so that they would sink down and fish would get caught and you bring it back up. This is way, uh, Peter's way of saying, look, cast those everyday anxieties and concerns that weigh you down. Cast them over the edge into the mighty hands of the Lord because he cares for you. He wants to take that from you. One of the most important philosophers of the 20th century was this guy named Martin Heidegger. Heidegger talked about how every single one of us just seems to feel like we're thrown into this chaos that just can't be controlled. He talked about how this is a shared human experience. We spend our lives trying to rid ourselves of that gnawing restlessness we feel inside. The Bible calls that chaos the effects of sin in a fallen world. What it feels like to live in a broken world. And God says we remove the power of those things by handing it over to him, by handing our anxieties over to him. Is that where you run with your cares? Do you run with your cares and your concerns to the God who cares about you even more than you do? Or do you run someplace else? Not talking to you. <laughs> My watch said I'm having trouble hearing you. <laughs> but I feel like I'm yelling. <clears throat> our, friend, uh, our friend Ashley Hales um, asked this question in her great book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs. She says, ask yourself, where do I run when I experience negative emotions? Is it food, a listening ear, shopping, drinks, exercise? Not that those things are bad, but do we first bring our fear, our angst, and impatience to a God who can actually do something about it? Above and beyond those things. You see, we're actually at a disadvantage at this, I think, in the suburbs. Because we're driven by comfort in the suburbs, right? That's why we live here. We're driven by comfort. And so we try to pretend away our concerns instead of actually dealing with them. We pretend them away by running hard in the other direction, by avoiding hard conversations, maybe by turning to the comforts of the world. There's a type of Christianity that's popular in the suburbs that one author calls country club Christianity. It's a type of Christianity that's focused on self-preservation and comfort, where you avoid messiness at all costs. <clears throat> and church just becomes like your social club of preference. This place that you visit, but it has no real impact on your everyday life. But as opposed to country club Christianity, biblical Christianity is where you lay your pride down 
in worship. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and you trust him with the real cares of your life. You understand that commands like this aren't to oppress us, but to free us? Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God because he cares for you. He cares for you. It's a posture, an attitude, and a heart orientation that rests in God as the one who meets our deepest needs. Do you find yourself with that kind of heart orientation? Where you're living as though God is real. Where you're actually living the way you live out your life is that he's actually real, that he's powerful, that he's near and present, that he actually cares for you. Don't pretend your anxieties away. Don't cast them onto things that can't give you true rest, but cast them onto the one who cares for you more than anyone else ever has. Number three, Peter says, to take hold of this kind of rest, you also got to be ready for battle. Be ready for battle. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded. We talked about that word uh, last month, didn't we? It's about having this state of mind where you're careful, attentive, and aware about the way that you think. It's not just about what happens to your mind when you're like drunk or inebriated, but it's about what happens when you're carried away by impulses, where you're distracted by comforts. And just to to echo what we said last last, uh, month, like like what, what happens? What happens when you do drink too much? When you're drunk or when you get high? Your mental faculties start to get limited, Right? can't think as clearly, your thinking's hindered, you, 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 you can't reason clearly, you can't focus on true spiritual realities. And again, there's nothing wrong with enjoying a little wine every now and then like Jesus did. But it's when that glass starts to hold the place in your life that should be held by the God who made you and who redeemed you, who freed you by the blood of his son. That's when it becomes a tool in the hands of Satan. I'm listening to the Revelation series right now that Village Church in Texas is, is going through. Um, just getting really pumped up for our, uh, we're going to be going through the book of Revelation next. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. But uh, the pastor there, the preaching pastor, Matt Chandler, I love this quote, he says. He says, a good glass of wine, bourbon, or scotch is a good gift of God's grace to be enjoyed responsibly. But drinking a bottle of wine a day just to get you through life and to soothe your anxiety is rebellion against the God of the universe. You see, it's the opposite of humbling yourself under God's mighty hand. It's actually playing yourself at the hand of the adversary. 
Again, it's not just about what happens in your state of mind when you drink too much. Like that's just one example. Being sober-minded and watchful is about so much more than that. It's about what happens when you get carried away by fleshly impulses. It's about what happens when you get sort of distracted by the comforts of this world. It's when your mind gets rewired by the constant scrolling of social media or the chemical rush of pornography. Some of us, some of us aren't awake enough to the realities of the kingdom. We aren't awake to the reality that we have habits. Habits we're engaging that are drawing us away from Christ and his people. We aren't awake to the reality that we have anxieties the enemy is using to destroy us. We've been coddled. We've been coddled by him, by the comforts of this world. We've been lulled to sleep by an enemy who's at war against God and his people. And it's time. It's time for us to wake up. Time to be shaken from your slumber to see the powers of hell at work against you. I don't usually talk like this behind the pulpit, but considering the context, I think it's appropriate to say it's time to wake the hell up. The devil's not some annoying gnat that you can shoo away in your sleep. He's a lion salivating over you in your slumber. You can't handle him in your sleep. You need to be sober-minded, be watchful. Look at that warning again in verse 8. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is why we need to be ready for battle because there is an enemy of your soul evil is not only real he is personal there's a real devil who's out to divide and destroy and devour God's people and because of that the stakes are high that's why you got to be watchful. Throughout the scriptures, you turn the pages, you see the terms and pictures used for Satan are, are terrifying intentionally. He's a roaring lion. He's a great red dragon. He's the god of this world, lowercase g. He's a prince of the power of the air. The idea is that the devil is a supernatural personal force of evil and power that should not be taken lightly. You guys ever seen like a nature documentary where just the predator like obliterates the prey? Usually they like sort of cut it off or, or, or fade it into, into gray and explain what's happening. Some of you guys probably follow this. There's this popular Instagram account that shows like the kinds of shots that are just like too gnarly to make it onto the Discovery Channel. And you'll often see on this account like lions grabbing at this unassuming elk. Like sometimes there's video, uh, you'll see like hiding out, out in the bushes, attacking the elk, and then you see flesh starting to fly like in, in, in a, like all these frames per second. I don't know what the number is, you know, like slow motion, just high definition. Uh, and it's like flying everywhere, the guts start rolling around in the dirt. Uh, and, and no, it sounds disgusting, and it's supposed to be. 
you see this animal trying to run for its life, but it's too late. And then the, the next lion comes in, and it, it's just nasty. It's gory. That's the picture that Peter wants us to have. A roaring lion seeking to devour. C.S. Lewis talks about, uh, after he came to faith, he, he started talking about like uh, two different errors we make in our our, our, our view of, of, of demons and the devil. He says, on the one hand, we have the, the, uh, the view of superstition, and on the other hand, we have a view of, I don't know if this is a real word, but he likes to make up words, substition. <laughs> superstition means like you're too scared of the devil, right? You have this fantastical picture of him. Like think about like exorcisms or movies like The Conjuring, Right? And you're just thinking like, oh man, no, that's too scary. That's too gnarly. Like and you just run away from any idea of that, right? Like it's not real. It's not real. Like you just want to pretend it uh, away. You want to run in the other direction. Substition means you're not scared enough. You don't think he's real or you think he's real, but you don't think he's at work in any real tangible sort of way. But Peter says, no, be sober and watchful. Because he's at work in cunning ways. In ways that you least expect. And before you know it, he's devoured you. He's at work in your apathy. He's at work in your boredom, in your laziness, in your bitterness, in your cynicism. He's at work in your daily anxieties. Your enemy, he says, is like a lion looking for your weak spots, looking for the moments where you're lured by temptation, looking for those places that you're prone to just sort of check out when you're making foolish decisions and exposing yourself at the center of his crosshairs. Maybe a question to ask at this moment would be like, when it comes to these kingdom realities, of what's really happening behind the curtain. Do you live seriously and sober-mindedly? Do you live watchfully? Doesn't mean you need to take yourself seriously all the time, but do you take the Lord seriously and his word and the gospel? He says, don't just be ready for battle, but number four, resist the enemy with a family of faith. Look at verse nine. He says, resist him, speaking of the adversary, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So here he's connecting the tactics of the enemy with our suffering in real life. He connects the tactics of the enemy with our suffering in real life. And think about it. When are you most spiritually vulnerable? It's when we are going through difficult times. It's when we're suffering that we're most morally and spiritually vulnerable. When you're suffering, you're tempted to get anxious and angry. You're tempted to doubt the wisdom of God. You're tempted to envy others around you. You're tempted to separate yourself from others. 
You're tempted to not believe in the power of prayer. And so Peter says, resist him firm in your faith. In other words, being deeply rooted in the faith, deeply rooted in the word of God. See, faith is what the devil's trying to destroy. Your belief, your firmness in that faith. So he says, resist him firm in your faith, (coughs) knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. (coughs) You know what one of Satan's craftiest lies is? It's that, that you're alone. That you're alone. <coughs> that your situation is unique. That you're alone in your experience. That somehow everyone else has it together. That somehow everyone else doesn't have to go through these kinds of things. Everyone else has it easier. You're being singled out. Personally, <coughs> when I'm feeling alone like that, just a sort of a peek into my dark moments. Like when I'm feeling alone like that, you know what thoughts begin to follow? Man, where's God? Where's God? Why doesn't he care? Why didn't he stop this? Why doesn't he love me? Why doesn't anyone love me? Why doesn't he feel near and present? Why am I the only one? And Peter says, no, you're suffering. Your suffering is shared by others. <coughs> See, if we live, if we all live in a fallen world as elect exiles, suffering will just be part of our shared experience. If you live for Christ in a land that has rejected him, then suffering will be part of your experience along with the other saints of God. You are not alone. You're not the only one that the enemy is trying to get you to believe lies. You're not the only one struggling with these Lean on the family of faith. Lean on the family of faith through your church, through this church. Remember those around the world and throughout history who have gone and are going through the same kinds of things. And remember the hope that helps us persevere. That's our last point, number five. Remember the promise of hope. Remember the promise of hope. Read verse 10 with me. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He says, your suffering is just a little while. When he uses that phrase, little while, what he's referring to is, is our life here on this planet. <clears throat> you might be thinking like, well, that sounds like a long while, right? 
That sounds like a long while. That sounds like 60, 70, 80 years. Man, the Bible teaches us that our, 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 <clears throat> our lives are a vapor. We're here one moment, we're gone the next. And this suffering that feels so suffocating right now, this suffering that you can cast onto his mighty hand, this suffering is the weight of a feather compared to the mountain of glory that you are headed towards. Peter says, he is the God of all grace. The God of all grace who has called you to that eternal glory in Christ. See, the value of his glory, the value of this glory, is not found in ourselves, but in how hidden our lives are in Christ. The things of this world will waste away but the grace and the glory we have in Christ will never fade, never fade. Peter ends on this note because he wants you to know that God will never keep this grace from you. He'll never keep this grace from you. Your suffering will never thwart his mighty hand from helping you. Your circumstances will not stop his work to restore and mend you. These promises, that is what you will experience if you hold firm in your faith. He's the God of all grace. All grace, not even your sins and failures will keep his love from you. You don't have to prove your righteousness to him. Jesus came to give you his. Let his life cover and swallow yours, and he will redeem, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then Peter says in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's interesting, right? Normally when you see a doxology like that, it says to him be the glory forever. Why do you think Peter says to him be the dominion forever and ever? I think it's because Peter knows this is the most appropriate way to finish a letter of encouragement to those who suffer. To finish on the note that God is bigger than the powers of the earth. He is able. Even though you're gonna go through hard things, God rules over all things for your sake, for the sake of his elect exiles. It's in that reality that we find hope. How do we live that out? How can we live out this reality, live out this reality? It's by looking to Jesus. Looking to Christ, looking to Jesus, the true lion, the greater lion, who didn't devour us in our rebellion, but came off his kingly throne to lay down his life as an offering, like a lamb. Know your place under his 
sacrificial, life-giving, his benevolent dominion. Know your place under his gracious dominion. Place your cares in his mighty hands. Be ready. Be watchful for anything that might distract you from the beauty of this grace. Resist the adversary that he has already defeated. And remember his grace. Remember the hope of his grace. We have nothing outside of his grace. Your hope isn't found in your control. It's not found in your strength. It's not found in your performance. It's found in him. The one who came, lived, suffered, died, and rose to purchase eternal rest for you. That's his domain. And we're invited to rest in it. He purchased the way. I want to close our time with a quote from the church father, Augustine. When he wrote this prayer saying, Almighty God, you've made us for yourself. And our hearts Our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.